As some of you know, we finished Ephesians, our series in the book of Ephesians, and we try to make it our habit that every time we finish a book, we want to give an interval period where we just really prayerfully consider messages that we can touch on, topics maybe that we can speak on before we jump into another book and just follow it verse by verse. And this is one of those messages that um, we trust that the Lord has for us. One of the unfortunate consequences of our daily routines and our uh, daily responsibilities is that certain truths we believe can be buried in the back of our minds to a degree in which we almost completely dismiss what these truths mean to us. Uh, This is an influence. This is uh, something that happens to us because of unfortunate neglect on our part to remember and to continue to keep these things before us. And it deflates the influence of these truths on the way we actually live. There is a draining of something in us when a truth is blanketed by busyness, lies, different voices. And this happens today and it happened in Peter's day where our minds can go stale and we are in need of a stirring. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1 with me. Peter says this, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter had a revelation from the Lord. It's a lovely revelation. He knew that at any time now, the Lord was going to take him into glory. The Lord was going to take him home. He was going to stand before the Savior face to face. Now, if you knew that, if if somehow the Lord gave you revelation, that at any time, very quickly, you would slip into eternity, and you had at the same time an opportunity to write a letter to the believers that you know, what would you write? What would you include in that letter? Would you encourage? Would you warn? Peter does both. He does it both times in both letters, actually. And in fact, he says this more than once when we come to chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you in verse 1. Beloved, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So again, he is he's coming to the believers and saying, listen, I want to get here again because something here has gone stale and I want to make sure that it doesn't grow cold and callous to the point where it paralyzes you in a certain manner of life. So I'm going to use this time that I have left. I'm going to make it my ambition to make sure that you're stirred again. Believers, we need to be stirred all the time, all the time. And we don't stir ourselves up emotionally. We don't stir ourselves up by just whipping ourselves up into a frenzy. No, it's through the Word of God. It's by allowing the truths of the Scriptures to break up that dry and callous ground that we've built up, unfortunately, because of neglect and allow the Lord to rain righteousness upon us. Now, what did Peter include? What does Peter want to focus on as he desires to stir up the minds of the believers? 
the concluding chapter focuses on a truth that not just believers back then could forget about, but believers today especially forget about, and it is this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And this is something that we need to really take a hold of. Peter wants to write it in such a fashion that you and I would never forget this truth. What do we mean by Jesus is coming back? We as Christians, we as the church of Jesus Christ, doctrinally, this is our doctrinal statement, we believe, we confess, we wholeheartedly hold to this truth, that the Lord Jesus Christ will return in a literal way, in bodily fashion. Jesus Christ, who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, who dwelt in eternity before that, and who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, will one day come back. And he will come back for this purpose, though it can be many reasons. There are many implications to his return. This is the main one. He will come back to redeem the faithful, those who put their trust in his saving work, to bring them into everlasting life with them. And he will also come back to condemn those who have not put their trust in him into everlasting destruction. This is the reason why he's returning. In other words, this is not it. Now this teaching already, probably in some people right here, are, are making you feel uncomfortable. It's making you feel really uncomfortable, real fidgety. In fact, it makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Even professing Christians. Now, for the, for the unbelieving world, that's a whole other category why this would make them feel uncomfortable. But for believers, why would this teaching make us feel squirmish? I believe one reason is this, is because we have plans. We have desires. We have things that we want to do in life. And this concept of Jesus returning kind of interferes with that, doesn't it? It's kind of intrusive. And so we hear it, and it doesn't really make us feel uncomfortable because it's like, well, Lord, could you just hold back a little bit? There's some things I want to kind of do. And I believe that thought pattern that is so common, it, it kind of springs up even from time to time. That thought pattern is evidence that we've unfortunately allowed our affections to be too tied down to this world here. And that we have failed to allow the word of God to renew our minds to such a degree where we say what it says in the end of the book of Revelation with, with the Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Would you come? Why are you holding back? We want you to be here now. And I believe the reason why we don't have that cry, come, Lord Jesus, is because we don't realize, one, who he is, and two, what he wants to bring with him. And we think that what is here is better and that heaven and Seeing Jesus face to face is kind of like a plan B to this. It's kind of a downgrade when Jesus comes back. So Lord, just hold off because we want to have some fun here and come back when maybe when I'm old and I can't move as much. We fail to realize that it should actually be the cry of the believer, the craving of his heart for the Lord to return. Peter says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder because Acts 1.11 tells us and when Jesus ascended before his disciples, these angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This event, known as the second coming, is an event that has been marked to the hour by God the Father. 
this event of the second coming, it is so dramatic that it will be seen by every eye that is on earth. This event of the second coming will change every aspect of our existence as it will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. This event known as the second coming is something to be prepared for even by Christians. Even by Christians. And so Peter begins, I want to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter begins by nudging at their minds and their memory by pointing them back to the book. And he's saying, did you forget that this was predicted? Did you forget that this was something that was actually an Old Testament theme? That the prophets foretold of this coming? That this is something that is not, it's not a loose, it's not a blurry, it's not a non-specific event. It is clear and concrete from the beginning of time. I'm going to read a quote to you and I want you to think which prophet or which man of God in the Old Testament said these truths. Just listen to this. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Now don't say it out loud. Who do you think said that? Isaiah? Ezekiel? Daniel? Hosea? Habakkuk? Enoch. Jude 14.15 tells us that the seventh from Adam, Enoch, prophesied of the second coming. So we get to Genesis chapter 5 according to Jude's commentary, and Enoch has been given the revelation of the return of the Lord. And from that moment on, every prophet, almost every prophet, had that same revelation that Jesus is coming back. And this is fascinating because even Jesus in his earthly ministry, interpreted these prophetic statements and even himself to, to such precision said that he was going to fulfill these things, even in ways that we cannot even really see. Yes, we know that Jesus spoke about the times and the signs, but even in subtle matters that the Lord interpret the scriptures concerning his return. Let me give you an example. Turn to Luke chapter 4. This is after Jesus came out of the wilderness journey and overcame temptation from Satan. Where he came out in the power of the Spirit in verse 16 of chapter 4. It says, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor full stop. You know, what does that have to do with the second coming? That sounds like his first coming. It is speaking of his first coming. But Jesus knew the scriptures. And Jesus knew who he was obviously. And Jesus knew his ministry in the first coming and what his ministry would be in the second coming 
in light of using Isaiah chapter 61. And you say, well, again, what does that have to do with the second coming? You have to turn to Isaiah 61 to see. Turn to Isaiah 61 and see what the Lord did here. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Sound familiar? And the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that's where Jesus stopped. Why? Because look at the next part. And the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus did not go to the next line. Why? Because that is the fulfillment of his second coming. He stopped it right there because the first verse and a half of the second speaks of his first coming. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to stop it right here because I did not come to condemn. I came to save. First time. Aren't you glad for the first coming? Because the second coming is a second part, which is what? The day of vengeance of our God. And so he stopped it right there. And that is the fascinating thing about prophecy in the Old Testament. A lot of the times, and this is why even many of the religious people in Jesus' day were kind of confused because they didn't know the scriptures as much as they thought. A lot of the times in Old Testament prophecy, you have first, for Jesus' first coming really compiled and blended with his second coming. And it's not so divided neatly for us to be able to see, oh, that's speaking of his first coming, that's speaking of his second. It's kind of blended. It almost seems like it's all one event. So it's quite possible that when Jesus first came, many people were expecting the Messiah to do all those other things, but he said, no, you don't understand. That's, that's about my second coming. Jesus knew very well who he was and what his ministry was all about. And many believers today, maybe you even thought this out or even said this, don't you wish we lived in biblical times? Don't you wish that, it's, it's, it's awesome to study this word, it's awesome to look at the different moments in history and the different things that happened, but it would be a whole different thing if we were living in it. You are living in it. You and I in this technologically advanced age and all these things that we're seeing in this godless generation, you and I are living in biblical times. Why? Because there are events that are still yet to happen, that are still to come, and we're playing in that role in history. And if it's up to the Lord, he can come back in our lifetime as well. That's what this message is about, actually. And he says here, not just the Old Testament prophets, when you go back to 2 Peter, he says, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, this automatically indicates that the New Testament believers and the apostles believe that even though the canon was not yet complete, that their writings were on the same level of authority as the Old Testament prophets. Right there. And what he's saying is that the Lord, through the apostles, have given and echoed these teachings. And Jesus did teach and Jesus did prophesy and the apostles did very much so, just like Peter is, pressed on this reality of the second coming of Christ. But notice, it doesn't say the predictions of the holy prophets and the predictions of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. No, it says the commandment, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Why? Because again, Jesus did predict, Jesus did teach, but Jesus and the apostles spoke of the second coming in light of you and I living in a certain way as we relate to the second coming. 
There's a commandment. There's a way of life to live in knowing that the Lord is going to return. And so he categorizes it as a commandment. He sees this as a way to posture yourself and my to live. And so he says, listen, remember what they said. Why is he saying to remember? Because other people are saying different things. And this is the unfortunate thing, that the influence of other voices, the influence of other people's lifestyles can unfortunately affect not whether or not we believe this in a doctrinal way, but how it affects us. How it affects us. And so he says this, verse 3, knowing the first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. He goes, listen, there's going to be people in the last days that are going to scoff at this idea of the second coming. Scoffers are mockers. They're going to jeer. They're going to make fun of. They're going to continually point out at the fact that it's been 2,000 years. There's going to be people that are going to mock this concept. And if anybody in here mocks the concept of the second coming, you are evidence that we are in the last days. The fact that we see people mocking at salvation, mocking Christ, mocking the judgment to come, is proof that we are in the last days, amongst many other proofs. And so he comes here to say, I I want you to know that the scriptures tell us that there is a second coming. No matter what anybody else says, we're in the last days. Now, you might be asking, are we, in the, are we actually in 2018 in the last days? And I say, yes. Absolutely. Not because of my opinion. Not because I'm predicting events and trying to tie them into this. No, because it's already said in the scriptures. Do you want to know one solid verse that tells us we're in the last days? In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church and the church was born, And Peter gives that magnificent sermon. It says in verse 16, funny enough, as people were kind of scoffing, that they were like drunk men. In verse 16 he says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. The birth of the church inaugurated the last days. So we've been in the last days for the past 2,000 years. Now, if it was the last days back then, what do you think it's now? I'll tell you, it's the last seconds. We are in the last days. People might think otherwise, but it's true. Now, Peter, inspired by the Spirit, will even give us insight to what these scoffers will say. There are points of arguments of why this idea is foolishness in their sight. They will say in verse 4 of 2 Peter 3, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. So let's chop this up a bit. The first thing that they're going to say to criticize this concept and this doctrine and this truth, this event, is that they will point out the apparent delay of his return. Why is he waiting so long? What's what's been happening this past 2,000 years? And they might even point out the fact that the apostles and the, the early believers at this time believed that Jesus was going to return in their day. So they believed that it didn't happen, so what makes you think it's going to happen in your day? 
And so they will look at the apparent delay and say, it seems like it's not going to happen, is it? Every generation of Christians have been saying that there's going to be a return of Christ in their day. It's true, but one of them is going to be right. And here's the understanding. Jesus intended for every generation of Christians to believe that he was going to return in their day. He intended that to happen. So you have the apostles that in Acts chapter 1 asking Jesus right before he's going to ascend in verse 6, uh, Lord, um, is this the time where you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So they're asking for the time. And you know how the Lord answers? Amazingly. Verse 7. You can just hear this. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He says, it's not for you to know. For you to know the dates and the times and try to predict it, don't waste your time, don't waste your efforts. God knows in his wisdom. Imagine he did reveal the time he was coming. What, what would it be like for all these generations that just passed? The apathy and the laziness and the carelessness that would come. He knew in his wisdom not to reveal it. So what does he say in verse, verse 8? But the Holy Spirit will come to you and give you power. You go and preach. Don't get so caught up in all this stuff. Go and make disciples. Go and plant churches. Go and spread the good news. Go and bear fruit. That's how you and I have to live in light of the revelation of the second coming. Not sitting in our basement trying to figure out, oh, this event, looking at the news and trying to tie it to a verse. Oh, Jesus says, don't even waste your time. Jesus, in his wisdom, intended for every generation to live with the expectation that he can come back even while you're having lunch after this service. And it says here in the second part of their argument, For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Next, they will point out the timeline of history, and they will make the observation that it's always been the same since the beginning. And so Jesus said that part of the signs and part of the things that will show that we are near the end is that there's going to be famines and rumors of war and diseases and pestilence and all these different things. And here's the counter-argument for the scoffer. That's always been happening. There's always been earthquakes and there's always been natural disasters. We've always had bumps of history and history and, and look where we are, right? We're, we're just fine. It's just a cycle. It's been the same since the beginning of time. And in fact, they might add to this. That there's nothing major that has occurred that would indicate the Lord coming. Our society is developing. We are advancing in our technology. Unity amongst nations is becoming more of a reality. And inventions are coming along that are improving the way of life. And so even this concept like Jesus bodily returning and, and coming to judge, that sounds so medieval. That sounds so cinematic and so imaginative. How, how can you think in this day that there's actually going to be a return? And Peter now wants to answer those things. In verse 5, he criticizes the critics. For they deliberately overlook this fact. In other words, if they really wanted proof, they have this proof, which Peter's about to describe, but they deliberately overlook it. They don't want to believe it. They choose to turn a blind eye to this reality that points to the fact that judgment is going to come. Christ is going to actually return. And what does he point to? The flood. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then that existed was deluged with water and perished. 
It's no wonder that these events in the Old Testament, and you have even professing believers that want to point to these supernatural events and say that it's allegory, and say that it's just stories to give a meaning, that there's no way that there could have been this and that. Are you, are you kidding me? And I find it amazing that the stories that modern-day skeptics criticize are the stories that Jesus validated the most. A man being swallowed up by a fish? Come on. And Jesus says, you're going to receive the sign of Jonah. That's the only sign you're getting. What will the days of the end be like? What did Jesus say? As were the days of Noah. Do you know why I can believe these stories are true as historical narratives, despite the world mocking it? Because Jesus believed it. Jesus believed that these were historical narratives. He didn't use these as allegorical stories and metaphors. No, he said, these things actually happen. In fact, it's going to repeat itself. What did he say in Matthew 24, 37? You don't have to turn there, just hear these words. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What will the days of Noah be like? People are going to go out to eat at restaurants. They're going to enjoy meals. People are going to be planning to get married. People are going to have families. People are going to enjoy life. But you know what? Though people have plans in this life, though people are enjoying their life, none of that will stop what God had ordained in his schedule and his prophetic timeline of the return of Christ. And so Jesus is pointing back to the days of Noah. As much as it was violent, it was violent. As much as it was sexually perverse, there was normal activities going on. We think that when the second coming is going to come, it's going to be already like this apocalyptic kind of thing. Things are going to go down. No, no, no. He says people are going to be marrying each other. They're going to have families. They're going to go out on vacations. They're going to go and finish their degree. And this is when Jesus is going to come back. In the midst of all your plans, in the midst of all your desires, in the midst of all those things, in the middle of your pregnancy, Jesus is coming back. And so Jesus validated these stories. And Peter wants to say, listen, if God judged the world before, what makes you think that he's not going to do it again? And the only difference between God's judgment back then and God's judgment to come is that he's just going to change the element of his judgment. Before it was water, but now he's storing up fire. In fact, what does it say here? Verse 7. But by the same word, what word? The word that spoke water into existence? The word that created the earth? He says that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. The only thing that is holding back this world, as you and I know it, from being consumed in flames is that God hasn't spoken for it to come to pass. And in the midst of all the scoffing and all the mocking and all the late night TV shows that spit in the face of Christ and all the loudness of all of it, God is keeping his mouth shut. But then one day God will open his mouth and when he says the word, all for a sudden, just like that flood, people are going to be swept up into judgment. It says here that they scoffed and what else? There was a second description of what these kind of people were. They scoffed 
and verse 3, following their own sinful desires. I am a firm believer that the, the fact that we have diluted this understanding of the second coming of Christ has increased the wickedness in our day. Do you want to know why there's so much murder in this city? Do you want to know why there's so much sex trafficking in our world? Do you want to know why there's so much chaos? I'll give you one reason why. There's a contribution to that. Because people have lost the fear of God. And they do not know. You know what they do know? They know that God is forgiving. Go to anybody on the street and ask them how they know they'll go to heaven. I'm talking about people that don't go to church. And you ask them that if you were to stand before God and you bring the law and you show them that they will be guilty even if they just lied or whatever, and you ask them, well, you just clearly admitted that you broke, you've lied, you've looked at a woman with lust, that you are guilty before God, so how are you, you going to have eternal life? You know what they'll say? Take it from a guy who's talked to so many people on the streets about this. They'll look at you and say, well, God is forgiving. He is forgiving. But when you've reached that point, you've cut off your opportunity to receive forgiveness. We've lost the fear of God. We've lost this concept of the God that we worship. And because of that, people willfully continue in their sin. And part of their scoffing is to numb them. Is to numb them from the conviction of their way of life. So they scoff so that they can continue in their sin. Being kept until the day, the second part of verse 7, of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this is the argument of these people who criticize this truth. And Peter now turns his attention to the believers. So he points out what these scoffers will say, and he goes, you know what, those are the scoffers. Now let me turn to you Christians, and let me give you some words of exhortation. Let me bring up some clarity to you concerning this idea of Jesus returning again. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So these scoffers look at you and they say, it's been 2,000 years. These scoffers will look at you and say, it's been so long. And they fail to realize, amongst many other things, they fail to realize that our perception of time is not God's perception of time. How time affects us is not the way that time affects God. In fact, a 1,000 years to him is like a day, and a day is like a 1,000 years. Time does not have any influence on our God. And if we use that and we kind of do the math, it's been 2,000 years for us, it feels like two days for God. All the things that has happened in history, all the, all the events, all the lifetimes that have been lived, all the saints of old, all the craziness, all the wars, all of that to God, it feels like nothing, but to use this kind of argument, to use this kind of expression, it's been like two days. And we see here that he points out that these people fail to realize that in fact God's apparent slowness is actually the expression of his long-suffering. They fail to realize that God lives in a different realm, and they fail to realize that this apparent slowness, the fact that it has been 2,000 years, because maybe we've even thought that ourselves. It's been kind of long. Why so long? And Peter says, you want to know why it's been 2,000 years? Well, up to this point, not 2,000, but for us. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You might be tired this morning. You might be weary in the flesh. But know this. The reason that you and I have another day to live today 
It's because God desires for some people to repent today. Maybe in this room, definitely in this city, definitely around this world. The only reason why there is another day amongst, yes, his grace and everything else, but here's what I see here. God is still waiting for people to repent this morning. He's waiting for somebody to get in to turn. And I see here a God that doesn't want some saved. He wants all saved. I, I don't see a God here that's looking to judge. He is delighting in mercy more than his wrath. I see God here that as much as he does want to be one with his bride in the fullness, he's still waiting for people to be added to the bride. This is a God of compassion. And here's these scoffers mocking at the fact that he's in return. And what, what is the revelation we have? It's because he's waiting for you to repent. That's why. And so we think it's been 2,000 years, it's been a long time, but what's 2,000 years in light of eternity in hell? So God knows, and God waits, and there is a time in which God's justice must be satisfied, and he will speak the word, and Christ will return. But that day is being held back by one thing, his long-suffering. And he calls and appoints preachers of righteousness during this time. What does it say in 2 Peter 2? You don't have to turn there. That Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Anybody in here that's feeling called to be a preacher to any degree, whether full-time or part-time, know this. Be a preacher of righteousness. We don't have much of that today. Most of it is pop psychology. Most of it is how you can feel good about yourself. And what, what was Noah's preaching in light of knowing that the flood was coming? Righteousness. What is it in light of the new covenant? That you don't have righteousness. That you need Christ's righteousness. That you need his imputed perfection into your account. What is it to the believer who has put his faith in Christ? Righteousness. How? Live righteously. And live holy in light of the second coming. Righteousness was Noah's theme of preaching. And this is God's desire for those who want to share their faith. Especially behind the pulpit. And this is amazing. Because if we want to... Learn something about the second coming, even from Enoch's prophecy. We learn a lot that God, even from the beginning, has uttered his desire and his set appointed moment where he will judge from Genesis chapter 5 through Enoch. But there's something else about Enoch's life that we learn. And some of you were here last Sunday when we talked about this casually after the service. Go to Genesis chapter 5 and realize something about the life of Enoch that is so very relevant for us in the beginning. Genesis chapter 5. Verse 21. Chapter 5 speaks of the generations of Adam, the descendants of Adam. And only one in Genesis chapter 5 is mentioned to have walked with God. Only one. Enoch. It says simply that Enoch had lived 65 years he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years. So there's an indication here that Methuselah, after he was born, something there with his birth and raising him up caused Enoch to want to walk with God. What was it about fathering Methuselah that provoked Enoch to say, I want to walk with the Lord? Now we know from Jude that clearly Enoch had received some kind of prophetic revelation throughout his life. 
And I believe here that Enoch had received revelation not just of the second coming, but Enoch had received revelation of the flood and the judgment that was going to come in his day. How do you know? Remember, it says that after he fathered Methuselah, he walked with God. Now here's the interesting thing. The name Methuselah means when he dies, it shall come. That's what Methuselah means. When he dies, it shall come. And with that revelation, Enoch says, I'm going to walk with God. If you do the math, some believe that if you do the math very carefully, when Methuselah died is exactly when the flood occurred. And so here's the, here's the application. That with the revelation that Methuselah was a prophetic time clock of God's judgment in the flesh, it caused Enoch to say, I'm going to walk closely to the Lord. That is significant. That is very significant. Because Peter is going to use that same motivation for Christians to live in a certain way in light of the coming judgment for Christians. And here's the most amazing thing about Enoch and Methuselah. Methuselah is the longest living man recorded in the Bible. 969 years. Meaning what? That God does not desire to give judgment. He prolonged it as long as possible through Methuselah's life. That he extended his years as long as possible until he brought judgment. Why? Because he doesn't want to do it. Yes, he does in the satisfaction of his justice, but knowing that those would be destroyed in light of that, he waited, he waited as long as he could before he actually unleashed his judgment. So Enoch walked with God, implying what? Walking with God. He didn't visit God like so many Christians do today. He walked with God daily, intimately, conversationally, including him in all matters. And Peter comes back here because he has some applications for us. Application for the non-believer clearly is to repent, to recognize the love of God, and to turn towards him before it's too late. Because you know what you and I don't have that Enoch had? We don't have a time clock in the flesh like Methuselah to realize that God could be coming in judgment at any time. Can you imagine how that was like for Enoch? That every time Methuselah had a cold or was really sick, he goes, oh, it could be happening today. Methuselah is sick today. He's not looking very well. Oh, God, are you coming? I'm going to walk close to you more than ever. You don't have that. You know what you have? Today. You only have today if you don't know Christ in this place. You only have today if you're a professing believer, but you're not truly born again. You only have today. There's no clues that God is going to give you. There's no prophetic name that he's going to give you for your future son or daughter. No. You only have today. But there's an application for the believer. Look at verse 17 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Look how Peter concludes his letter. You therefore, beloved, he's talking to believers. And look how tenderly this man is speaking to them. Beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Knowing this beforehand, don't lose your stability. John writes it in this way in 2 John 8. Watch yourselves. 
Huh, this is amazing. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. He, he says two things, two words that can be a sermon in itself. Watch yourselves. Don't let your mind get stale now. Don't get carried away by life. Don't lose this truth. Jesus is coming back. Don't get influenced by other people. Don't believe the scoffers. Don't get so caught up in the way society is developing and how there's new things out there to distract you from the call of God in your life. Don't forfeit the full reward. Now we know in Christ, because we're in Christ, the judgment to come does not affect us. No, but in Christ, yes, there is a judgment for us in the way we live our lives. And this is what he's talking about here. Don't forfeit it. Don't forfeit it. Don't press it. Here's my word this morning to this church. Don't lose your stability. You stay close to him. You do whatever you need to do to stir your, yourself up in way of reminder that Jesus is coming back. Can I ask you an honest question? How often do you meditate on that? In the midst of all the things that you think about, in the midst of all your meditations, when was the last time that you just sat there, even for a moment, even on your way to work in the car? You know, Jesus can come back and split the sky open right now as I'm holding my coffee to work. Has it ever occurred to us that he's going to come back bodily and we're going to see him face to face and become like him as he is? Where does that fit in our day-to-day -day routine? Don't lose your own stability. Don't forfeit the reward. How do I not lose my stability, though? By just remembering the fact that Jesus is coming back? Verse 18 is the antidote. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, there are only two directions in the Christian walk, and you've heard this before. If you're not going forward in Christ, you're automatically going to lose your stability. You're automatically going to just Just think of it this way, that there's only grow or go. And the moment you and I lose the ambition to grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of Jesus is the moment we open ourselves up to being pushed over and losing our centeredness in Christ. Losing our focus, losing our ambition, losing that zeal. It's grow. You and I must invest in growing in grace. Not talking about the grace for salvation. I'm talking about the grace for the power of God in our lives. The grace of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing him more. What Paul said possessed him. I must know him more. That is your protection from losing your stability. The moment you feel like you've lost your desire to grow in the knowledge of Christ and grow in grace is the moment you should have an alarm going off and fall on your face before God and say, Oh God, this is not your will for me. I need you to help me. Give me that appetite again. So don't lose your own stability. Well, how do I do that? You just grow. You just keep feeding yourself. You just keep investing in your relationship with God and you will be protected from verse 17. Do you know how people get to verse 17? They stop doing verse 18. They stop seeing the necessity, even the discipline of coming to the place where you're saying, I want to know more of his grace. I want to know more of him. And the moment you lose that is the first step of losing stability. Enoch walked with God. And it says something amazing about Enoch's life. That he walked with God in such a way where it says in Hebrews 11 that it pleased God and he was taken up. 
And I just, I, I can't help but see that in a literal way that as he's literally walking with God, in a moment, he's walking with God and he walks into eternity. And that's how the Lord wants you and I to live. That you would stay close to him until you slip into that next life. Not to lose your own stability found on your face and the Lord says, what happened? I don't know about you, but I want to walk into heaven in a way in which I was conversing with the Lord before I got there. I don't want it to be this, 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 this thing where I, I stand before him. It's like, oh, Lord, I haven't talked to you in so long. And here I am standing before you. I want to be translated into glory knowing that just moments before that, I was in the perfect will of God. And I lived a life, not for salvation, no, but in light of my salvation that pleased him. Very short message today because I'm closing with this thought. The second coming of Christ has practical implications for you and me. And this is how you and I know it. If you knew that Jesus was coming back tonight at 10 p.m., what changes would you make in your life right now? What changes would you make if you knew that Jesus Christ gave you a Methuselah? I'm coming back at 10 tonight. Who do you have to forgive? Who do you have to forgive that you have not forgiven yet? What prayers have you not prayed yet? What fruit have you willingly held back? What gifts have you held back from the Lord and being used for his glory? What conversations should you be having that you haven't had yet? Yes, I understand that. Listen, Peter is not promoting a way of living in such a way where you are this escapist mentality and you just hide yourself in your house and you don't do anything normal in society. No, 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 no. The main ambition that Peter has in mind by the Holy Spirit is that you and I, in the context of our life, would live holy and expectant of the Lord. Go back to 2 Peter and see how he, he describes it. Look at verse 11 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Such a beautiful picture. It's kind of terrifying, but it's beautiful at the same time. He goes, listen, God is coming in holy fire. And it's literally going to melt all the elements of the world. And he goes, since these things are going to be dissolved, what kind of life should you live? It's kind of a humorous thing to some of us. We might have even joked about it before, but it's true. You know that phone that you're so obsessed with? It's going to burn up one day. You know that car that you're living your life for to buy one day? It's going to turn into mush. That house that you've so focused on, it's going to turn into powder. This is what he's saying. Everything in this world is going to dissolve. Now again, he's not promoting a hermit lifestyle. But what he is saying is get your perspective right. Get your priorities straight. Christ is coming back. So what kind of lives should you have to live? Giving yourselves over to things that don't matter? Yes, God wants us to enjoy. Yes, God wants us to invest. Yes, God wants us to be people that are not so alienated from normal society that people don't even want what we have because they think we're just out of there. No, but we ought to live in such a way in which we know how to distance ourselves enough based on the revelation that Jesus is coming back and I want to be able to give him something to lay at his feet. 
So he says, these things are going to dissolve. And so many people are focusing on things that are going to dissolve over things that are eternal. And he says, make sure that your ambition is in holiness and godliness. Make sure, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in light of his teaching on the resurrection, out of all the things that he said to prove that the resurrection was true and that Jesus was going to take us back up, look how he ends it in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's everywhere in the New Testament. Don't lose focus. When things try to take your attention away from the things of God, concerning his return and concerning his reward that he's bringing with him, concerning the the new world that is being ushered in, live in light of that. Now, if you heard this entire message and you feel condemnation, you feel burden, you feel fear, you've completely missed it. You've completely missed it. What they're trying to promote here is hope for the believer. What they're trying to promote here is a purpose in life that is beyond what you think is limited to this. And he's saying here, don't lose sight of it. Don't let your mind grow stale to this. He can come back, and he can come back at any time. Believe it and live it in your daily decisions. Let the world scoff. God will get the final word. Let the world mock. The Lord sits on his throne and laughs. I don't know about you when I think of the second coming. If you're a born-again believer, that should put a smile on your face. And every ache in my body and every discouragement or disappointment in life is totally swallowed up by the reality that Jesus is the one that's going to rescue me from all of this. But if you're not saved in this place, even if you grew up in the church, he's coming and he's waiting for you to make that choice to follow him. He's coming and he's not wanting to judge, he's wanting to save And so he extends and he waits. But one day, that that time will be cut off. What, What do we take out of this as a church? As a community, again, here's a stirring reminder for us. Let's live in light of eternity. Let's pray big prayers. Let's prioritize ourselves right. And let's really believe. When I was preparing this message, can I just be transparent with you? I looked at these verses and I said, this is great. I believe this stuff. But here was my prayer as I was preparing. Lord, I get it here, but I want it so much more here. You might be sitting here this morning saying, I I believe it, I get it, I see I understand what you're saying. But Lord, I want it to come to a place where it actually grips me. I want to be gripped by this truth. I don't want to go into fanaticism like so many people do, and and they just go into a place where they're just like, again, divorced from society, and and they don't... They're not relatable and they're, no, no, no. But Lord, I just want to make sure that I'm actually walking, believing daily that you can come back. And I want everything that I do, I want everything that I do to be anchored by that truth. Don't let my mind go stale. More importantly, Lord, don't let my heart grow stale. Would you pray that prayer with me this morning as we close?
Lord, we choose to say yes, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, with the Spirit, and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that this is not it. We thank you that you're coming to bring in the completion of our redemption. And Lord, with this simple message this morning, we pray that we would see everything in this world that so many people idolize and slave themselves over as dissolving. Help us prioritize on the treasures of heaven. Help us live for the glory of God. Let us not lose that reward that we've been working for. And that reward to us more than anything is that one phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, if Peter's audience was in need of a stirring, how much more we? Lord, we ask that by the Spirit, even throughout this day, our hearts would be stirred by the truth. Oh, Lord, that you're coming again. And Lord, that causes us not to fear, not to worry, but to rejoice. To rejoice. And Lord, if you choose to do it in our lifetime or not, we will live in light of it. And we pray, Lord, that with this time that we have, you would give us the wisdom, you would give us the love, you would give us the ambition to walk with God and to invite others to do the same. Lord, keep our hearts, keep our hearts in light of this truth and protect us, Lord, from losing our stability in the faith. And Lord, Lord, we now worship you because you have redeemed us through the cross. Because now we are awaiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Receive our worship. Receive our worship and receive these words as a cry for your return. And Lord, if our affections are not there and they're set on other things in this world, renew us. If there's other things that we desire, if there's other things that we think are worthwhile and worth more of our life and our energy in this world, more than you coming back and having communion with you and being in glory with you with the saints, Lord, forgive us and wash us thoroughly until it is set on those things. We give you our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.